Would you please open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 17. Exodus, chapter 17. We've been following the story of Israel out of Egypt, now towards the promised land of Canaan. We've been following their story chapter by chapter, verse by verse, since the beginning of the book of Exodus. And in this phase of the story, I don't blame you for feeling like we're kind of in a cycle. It's sort of like a soap opera. It's like as the Exodus turns in this sort of section. You know, Israel has a problem, a crisis in the wilderness. They, they freak out. They complain to Moses. They complain to God. And then God answers their need. And a matter of fact, we're going to see two such occasions in this chapter right in front of us. Exodus chapter 17 contains two occasions where Israel was faced with an absolutely existential crisis, yet God, in his grace, in his goodness, he met their need. And we'll take a look at both of those instances here this morning. But what I want you to understand is that this time, this season of journeying through the wilderness, this is going to end in the book of Exodus pretty soon. Oh, oh, not that they're going to make it to the promised land. That doesn't happen until much later in the biblical narrative. No, but what's going to happen is in just a few chapters, they're going to arrive at Mount Sinai. And they're going to stay at Mount Sinai till the very end of the book of Exodus. Matter of fact, they're going to stay at Mount Sinai, not only through the end of the book of Exodus, but all through Leviticus and through half the book of Numbers. So they're going to stay right there at Mount Sinai, and God's going to teach them his law and pour into them and instruct them. But this time of traveling through the wilderness, this is really the last chapter in the book of Exodus that deals with it. So let's take a look at the two emergencies or crises that came to Israel in the midst of Exodus 17. The first one has to do with thirst. Look at it here, uh, Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Do you see sort of this familiar pattern? We saw it last week in Exodus chapter 16, where Israel was hungry. They needed food, and so they cried out to God, and God sent them bread from heaven, which they called manna. But you know, it's not just enough to have something to eat. You know this. Your body needs to be hydrated. There's a multi, multi multi-million dollar industry in just putting plastic bottles full of water into our hands. You know you need to drink water. You need it. I need it. Israel needed it. And when they didn't have it, they complained. They contended. Verse 2 says that they contended with Moses. Now, I do want to point out that this was a legitimate problem. Without water, they would die in the wilderness. So they weren't complaining about nothing. Yet, I think that where the children of Israel sort of failed, or at least didn't fulfill this as well as they could have, was in their complaining attitude against Moses. Matter of fact, verse 2 puts it this way. Not only did they complain against Moses, but verse 2 says, why do you tempt the Lord? In other words, they were testing God. They were provoking God in some way. 
They thought that their complaint was against having no water. They thought that their complaint was against Moses. But actually their complaining was against the Lord because in their complaining, it had some aspect of it, some feature that basically said, God, you don't care about us. God, you're not with us. And that provoked the Lord. You know, it's a common thing. When we have a problem, it's oftentimes much easier for us to blame someone else than it is to think through the problem carefully and spiritually. Lord, here's some crisis. Here's some emergency. Now, what do you want to say to me in the midst of this? What what are you trying to teach me? How do you want me to depend upon you in a way that I haven't depended on you before? Lord, open up the ears of my understanding. How much easier it is to just blame somebody. Well, it's their fault. That's why it is the way it is. If they weren't the way they were, then everything would be different. And that's how Israel was thinking about Moses. Now, I sort of play it out in my head. How could it have been different? What could have been different Israel's attitude? And I know I may be setting the expectation too high. This was a slave people. People have been degraded by slavery for hundreds of years, and they had just come out of Egypt. Maybe this was an aspiration that they had yet to reach to. But how about this? How about if Israel would have responded like this? They would have said, we're in a desert. It's not surprising that there isn't much water here. We need to look to God to meet this need. Moses, would you help us look to God? Now, how about that? Wouldn't that have been much better? But they didn't do that. Instantaneously, they blamed Moses and they began to doubt the love and the presence of God. And so what did Moses do? I love what Moses did in verse 4. You saw that. Moses, it says in verse 4, he cried out unto the Lord. God bless you, Moses. You have a lot of burdens on your shoulder. It wasn't easy leading the children of Israel. They could be contentious and difficult. But what did Moses do time and time again when these problems came up? He went back to the Lord. He cried out unto the Lord. I bet there were a lot of great prayer sessions in Moses' tent. I bet if you wouldn't have walked around Moses' tent when he was praying in these extreme times, if you wouldn't have thought he was crazy. Why are you shouting so, Moses? Why are you so passionate before the Lord? Because he's desperate before God. And he felt it was so bad in this situation, verse 4 says, that he wondered if the people weren't ready to stone him. So what are you going to do? Look at it here, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, this is thrilling. There's Moses kind of holed up in his tent, maybe maybe not literally, but sort of symbolically in a fetal position before the Lord. Lord, what are you going to do, please? These people are ready to kill me. I love what the Lord told him, Moses. Get out there. Come on, Moses. It's a time of crisis. It's time to lead. You may want to seal yourself away from the people, but you've got to get out there. Get other leaders in Israel, the elders of Israel. Get them around you. Get out there. Together as a great big team, you go out there. But most importantly, verse 5, take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river. There it is, Moses. Your staff, the rod of Moses. And you've seen that rod do great works before. You saw that rod get thrown down on the ground and turn into a serpent. And then you picked it up and it became a staff again. You, you uh, hit the Nile with that rod and it turned to blood. You raised that rod up over the Red Sea. You've seen the power of God work in and through that rod before. You take that up before the people and I'm going to show you what to do. And I just imagine that Moses couldn't pick up that rod, that staff of his, without remembering the great things that God had done. 
A smile comes over his face. A warmth comes into his soul. Yes, Lord, you have come through time and time again, and you use this rod to do it. I'm going to go out in front of the people, and I'm going to take the elders of Israel with me, and I'm going to go up to that rock that you lead me to. But look at it here, verse 6. Perhaps most importantly, behold, I will stand before you there, God says. Now, it's wonderful that God told Moses to go out to that rock. It's wonderful that God told him to take the rod in his hand. It's wonderful that he took the elders of Israel with him. But can I tell you, if it wasn't the Lord being there with him, what did it matter? But God said he was going to do the best thing of all. He said, verse 6, I will stand before you there. Oh, Moses, the people can't see me visibly, but I'll be there with you. I'll be right there beside you in the midst of this crisis. When the whole nation is looking to your leadership, I will stand with you there and I will demonstrate my presence to Israel. And let me tell you, that was the most important thing there, because as I read in one commentary this week by an old Puritan commentator named John Trapp, he said, if God had not stood upon the rock in vain, Moses had struck it. Means must be used, but God only depended upon for success. Could you imagine Moses striking the rock without the presence and the blessing of God? What good would that do? I invite any of you. Go take a big stick and go start beating on a rock. See how much water comes out of it for you. But with the presence of the Lord there, everything changes, doesn't it? God's promise was this. Verse 6, you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it. Moses was commanded in all the presence of the Lord. Could you imagine what a nervous moment this might be? All right, everybody, watch this. You know, how do you do that? But he did it. He struck the rock, and what happened? Life-giving water. It wasn't just water. It wasn't just to fill up swimming pools so that they could enjoy themselves. This was life-giving water for the people. What a miracle. I think three things about this miracle. First of all, I think it was a remarkable miracle. We just know it doesn't normally happen like this. You don't normally go around and hit a rock with a stick and water starts coming out. It was a remarkable miracle. But secondly, it was a generous miracle. Think about how the transaction went. What did Israel send up to heaven? They sent up complaining. They sent up testing. They sent up provoking. They tempted God. That's what they sent up to heaven. What did God send down? Water to meet their needs. Isn't that beautiful? I, I know you're thinking, you're thinking, Man, I wish God would treat me that generously. Oh, has he not? Has he not treated you that generously? Has not God been so much better to you than you could have ever deserved? I wish I could be written across every mind, every soul here this morning. You just understand God has been so much better to you than you've ever deserved. And the minute you start thinking that you've earned the blessings that God has sent your way, well, then you're in a lot of trouble. No, God has been generous to you and generous to me. But then not only was it remarkable, not only was it generous, but I'll tell you the third thing about this miracle. It was a meaningful miracle. And what do I mean by that? I don't even know if Moses understood it. But Moses was acting out a holy drama that Paul would later mention in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul wrote, this is verse 4, that they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul's telling us that when Moses struck the rock, it's like he was striking Christ. And what happens? You strike Jesus, and life-giving water flows 
before. Friends, isn't that exactly what happened on the cross? There's Jesus nailed to the cross, and it's as he was stricken by God the Father. He was afflicted by God the Father. And what happened when that affliction came upon him? Life-giving water came forth for you and I to trust in by the work of Jesus at the cross. So much so that you could say God wanted to illustrate that literally at the cross. Was not Jesus pierced with a stick at the cross? There's the spear from the cruel Roman soldier. You see, after Jesus had finished that holy transaction where he paid the penalty and the guilt and the judgment that your sin and my sin deserved, after he cried out those great words on the cross, it is finished. After he had paid the price, he yielded his soul to God the Father and his lifeless body hung upon the cross. And that soldier came along to make sure that he was dead. And with that stick, he pierced his side. And what flowed out of the riven side of Jesus? Blood and water. That's why Paul can look at this and say, well, what happened with Israel in the wilderness? It's an illustration. It's a picture. It's a powerful painting of what God did for us at the cross. Like the old hymn says, you know that old hymn, Rock of Ages? How about this? Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its wrath and power. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. So Moses is now going to name this place after God graciously provides. He wanted it to be a teaching moment for Israel. So it says here, verse 7, So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Well, notice he names the place Massa and Meribah. Massa means tempted. Meribah means contention. And by the way, the Bible refers to this event several other times, noting how Israel provoked the Lord in the wilderness. You you provoked me, God says. You contended with me. And what was the main point of contention? I'll tell you, it's right there in verse 7. They ask this question saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, think about that. Maybe there's somebody here right now at this service. You're asking that question. Oh, you wouldn't vocalize it, but it's in your heart. In your heart, you ask this question, is the Lord with me or not? Is God even present in my life? Is God here or not? Now, I could forgive you for wondering. Well, forget like it's like I have to forgive you for this. It's just a it's just a phrase of speaking. I could understand it if God had never done anything in your life to show you that he was with you. But I just ask you. I'm looking over several hundred individual lives. And I think as you access the memory back in your mind, month after month, year after year, you can give time and time again when God has demonstrated he has been with you. He saved your life. He saved you in a crisis. He rescued people dear to you. He he delivered you from some affliction. He's done it again and again and again in your life. And you know this and you value it. Now, you are in a similar position of the children of Israel. They could walk out in the morning and see the pillar of 
cloud there every day. They could wake up in the middle of the night and see the pillar of fire demonstrating the presence of God with his people. Jesus was present with them every step of the way. Ladies and gentlemen, the people who cried out, is the Lord with us or not? They did it with stomachs full of manna, bread sent from heaven. What excuse did they have it to have to say such a thing? And then I say, what excuse do I have to say such a thing? Well, the Lord delivers. The Lord delivers from provoking God, from contending with him in this way that would say, well, are you with us or not, Lord? All right, well, that's the first challenge. The first challenge all had to do with Israel's thirst, with their need for water in the wilderness. But that's not the only challenge they face. Chapter 17 gives us a second crisis. Let's look at that together, beginning of verse 8. The second crisis has to do with war. You'll see what I mean immediately. Verse 8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Well, the first thing I want you to notice about this is Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Who initiated this attack? The Amalekites did. This was an unprovoked attack by the Amalekites against Israel. And so what did God do in response? Well, directed by Moses, directed by the Lord, I should say, Moses called Joshua to lead the armies of Israel into battle and to defend the nation against the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a nomadic people like modern Bedouins, and they were distantly related to Israel descended through Jacob's brother Esau. And they came and they fought with Israel. They attacked Israel. But friends, they attacked Israel in a disgraceful and a dastardly way. You might say that there might be something honorable about the Amalekites if they said, we're threatened by the Israelites, let's meet them head on in battle. But that's not what they did. Do you know what the Amalekites did? They, with their swift horses and Bedouin warrior expertise, they came along the stragglers at the rear of the great column of Israelites that marched through the wilderness. They came to the stragglers and they killed them and they robbed them and they took as much baggage as they could. The the Bible tells us this. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18. It says this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and did not fear God. There was something disgraceful and dishonorable. After all, they were distant relatives. They shouldn't have been attacking the Israelites at all. But not only that, the way they attacked them was especially dishonorable. So what did God say? Verse 9, he instructed Moses to tell Joshua, go out, fight with Amalek. I want you to understand, there's a significant thing here. This was Israel's first war. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, didn't they have to battle against Egypt? No. Look, let's face it. God did all the fighting against Egypt. God sent all the plagues. God sent the plague against the firstborn. God got them out of Egypt. God made the Red Sea crash back upon the Egyptian armies. Oh, they won a victory at the Red Sea, but they didn't have to do any fighting. God did it all. But here, with the Amalekites, God says, strap on your swords. Mount whatever horses you have. Get the infantry ready. Organize for battle. We're going to fight a real battle. I don't know what Israel thought. 
Maybe they thought it would be like a yellow brick road, you know, with flowers growing on all sides on the way from Egypt to the promised land. But no, friends, they had to fight. There were wars that they had to contend with. And now when they face the Amalekites, it's a huge wake-up call to the entire nation. And as they're getting ready to fight them, God instructed Moses to go and to stand up on top of a hill overlooking the scene of battle, holding the rod of God. And I think this is interesting. Back in verse 5, if you'll notice, God spoke to Moses and called it your rod. In other words, God considered it to be Moses' rod. Now here, in verse 9, Moses calls it the rod of God. So whose was it? Was it Moses' stick or was it God's stick? And the answer is yes. It was both of theirs. I kind of see this as interesting. God called it the rod of Moses, and he honored Moses by that. But Moses called it the rod of God, and he honored God that way. All right, well, check it out now. Verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Can you please just picture that scene in your mind for a few moments? There on a valley floor are two great armies going to clash together in battle. You have on one side the swift, warrior-trained, battle-readied, brutal Amalekites. On the other side, you have the ragtag Israelite army. They're low on weapons. They've never been trained. They've never Who trains slaves how to fight wars? You just don't do that. It's a dangerous thing to do that with your slaves. And so they received no military training. They were a ragtag, unlikely bunch. And these two groups are getting together to clash with their lines of battle. And what happens? There on a hill overlooking the scene of battle, there's Moses. On one side of him is Aaron. On the other side of him is Hur. And there they are, these three men together with Moses in the middle. And Moses has his hands lifted in prayer. Now, you you need to understand something, that the ancient Hebrew posture of prayer was to raise one's hands. Now, that's not really our cultural posture of prayer, and I don't say our cultural posture of prayer is bad. Traditionally, what we do a lot of times is we'll fold our hands. Well, that's kind of a good thing. It's a good thing for me. Do you know what's good for me? Because I'm sort of ADD, and I'll always be fidgeting and doing things with my hands. So it's like we used to tell our children when they go into a shop, hands together, don't touch anything, just just settle down. So that's good for me. The closing of the eyes things, that's good for me. I pray with my eyes closed very often, not when I'm driving, but otherwise, you know, I just pray with my eyes closed because it helps shut out distractions. And I tend to be sort of, you know, scattered in my thinking and thinking about all sorts of, it just helps me focus a little bit. And maybe bowing my head a little bit, it reminds me of humility before God. There's nothing wrong, but you need to understand the ancient Hebrew posture prayer was something like this, to raise up your hands. And in one way, it was a way of demonstrating, I'm giving this to you, God. That's a great thing. It was also to raise up your hands to say, Lord, I'll receive whatever you have to give me. But it's also a posture of surrender, is it not? So all of those things together made for a Hebrew posture of prayer. Moses is up above the lines of battle, praying for the people. And do you understand what happens? Verse 11 tells us, So it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. Do you understand understand how crazy this is? 
Win, lose. Win, lose. I wonder, and I know this isn't the case, but just my weird thinking. I wonder if Moses didn't do that a few times just to see what would happen. <laughs> well, of course he wouldn't. I'll tell you why he wouldn't do it just to see it, just as an amusement. I'll tell you why he would not. Because Moses understood that life and death depended on this. This was no game. Lives would be lost. People would be maimed and injured for life if he did not pray. The, the, the future of the nation was at risk. And on the one hand, you say, Lord, this is crazy. This is crazy, God. I thought you blessed Israel. I thought you were with them. I thought you had a predestined plan for them. But God says, yes, but I'll tell you what. My predestined plan doesn't eliminate human responsibility in the slightest. Yes, I'm a sovereign God. Yes, I have a plan for all the ages. But it doesn't eliminate or diminish in the slightest way the responsibility of people to pray. So as far as Moses was concerned, life and death was, was tied to whether or not he prayed. i got to say, don't you see it for yourself? What a stirring call this is for us to pray. I don't know if we were to have a contest here, some sort of, of, a, of elimination contest here in our midst. Who's the mightiest person of prayer in this room right here? I don't know who it would be. But I tell you, I I could look at probably the mightiest person of prayer in this room and say, you could still pray more. Isn't it true? And and I thank God for the rich foundation of prayer that there is at this congregation. I thank God for the prayer groups that meet in many different places and and for the men and the women who get together and it's good. But but I'll say this, it needs to be more and more because life and death, heaven and hell, blessing or curse depends on this or this. And it's something very, very stirring for us to take to heart. It's very um, significant that God had this plan, but yet Moses was called and responsible to pray. This work of prayer isn't always easy. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands became heavy so that they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Thank you, God. Moses endured in prayer. Now, it wasn't easy. And that's how it is with prayer. I don't know if you've experienced this in prayer. If you haven't, you just keep praying and you'll experience this. That sometimes prayer is easy. Sometimes the heart overflows. Sometimes it's so easy to praise God and to thank him and to commune with him with our words. And just sometimes prayer is beautiful and easy. And sometimes prayer is so difficult that you feel like it's the hardest work in the world. That's why sometimes Paul described prayer as wrestling. Have you ever done much wrestling? I remember in high school PE classes, wrestling. And one thing I knew about wrestling was that if you were going to do it hard, it required every fiber of your being. You had to just give yourself to it completely. And Paul described prayer sometimes as wrestling in prayer. So don't be discouraged. Sometimes when prayer seems that difficult, that strenuous, you may be doing it exactly right. And you need somebody to come alongside and help you to hold up your hands in prayer. Uh, Aaron, uh, Moses had Aaron and her. There they were. They literally held up his hands in prayer. Moses had work to do in prayer, but it was more than he could do all by himself. So God called other godly men around him to help him in that. And the bottom line is this in verse 13. Because of this, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. 
because of this work of prayer, Israel was victorious over Amalek. We are left with no other option than to say this, that if Moses, Aaron, and Hur did not do that work in prayer, Israel would have been defeated and history would have been changed. Prayer won the battle. But I will say this. Did you see it there? Nevertheless, Joshua had to fight. Does anybody think it worked like this? There's Joshua looking up at Moses on the hill, and he sees Moses praying with his hands up, and he goes, hey, guys, don't worry about it. Put your swords down. Moses is praying. Didn't work like that at all, did it? No, Moses is praying. But Joshua, you better be fighting. You better be giving it your all in battle. The swords still have to clash. The battle has to be fought. But God will have a divine blessing upon it and a guarantee of success because Moses is praying. Let's look at the end of the chapter. It ends in a fascinating way, which in some way brings us to sort of an overarching theme of this morning's text. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Friends, there's a lot in this idea that I don't have the time to deal with this morning about this idea of God's ongoing battle with Amalek and the Amalekites and all that that was and all that it represents in our walk with God. But I just want you to understand this. Amalek was singled out for a special, special judgment of God Because they had the shame of being the first nation to make war against Israel. Because they had the shame of going out of their way to attack Israel. And and they had the shame of doing it in such a dastardly and disgraceful way. And actually, they had the shame of actually fighting against God. So when God won this great victory, he wanted it remembered. And he wanted that battle to continue against the Amalekites. But Moses built an altar and declared a name for God that should catch our attention. You saw it there in verse 15. Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. If you want to use some old King James speak, Jehovah Nissi. Nissi is the ancient Hebrew word for a flag or a banner. And the idea is this is that God is victorious in battle and the flag of his victory is lifted high. The the, the same word is used of the serpent on the pole later on in Numbers chapter 21 and in other significant passages. God got the glory. His flag was waving. God was the headline, the banner, the marquee over all of this. And I think this is significant because in this chapter we see many remarkable examples of God and man working together to do God's work. What do I mean by that? Well, God provided water from the rock, but Moses had to hit it with his rod. Joshua fought and Moses prayed, but it was still God who brought the victory. That's why they didn't name the place, Israel is my banner. They didn't name the place, Uh, Moses is my banner, or Joshua is my banner. What was the flag that they waved? The Lord, Jehovah, is my banner. I think about this. 
I think about it because I think it gives us some much-needed perspective coming into an election season. It's just a few days away, isn't it? This great thing that we do every four years in our nation, we vote for a new president of the United States. And that's a good thing. And you've heard me say before, I'll just say it again, I think you as a Christian, you have a Christian responsibility to vote. I think it's what God wants you to do. And I'll say again, I think you have a responsibility to not only vote, but to vote with a Christian conscience. To take your Christian conscience into the voting booth and to think through the issues carefully and to think through them, not necessarily with what the media would always say is important, but with what God would say is important. So you do that carefully. You think through it. But I will say this. Even with all of that, we remind ourselves the banner that we raise is the banner of the Lord. The Lord is our banner. He's the one who gets the glory. He's the one who gets the attention. And we want all things to come back to the Lord. Let the Lord be our banner. And I got to say that sometimes we're even more aware of the power and the help of God when we work together with him than when God, so to speak, does all the work by himself. That great banner, the Lord is my banner. That's a wonderful banner to wave. But that banner didn't come after the Red Sea when God defeated the Egyptians all on his own. It came after the war with Amalek where God used the fighting of the Israelites to bring the victory. The Lord is our banner. All right, let me conclude with one last thought here. I want you to think that any time you take a look at a passage from the Old Testament, it's always good to say, well, where's Jesus in all of this? When I was younger, uh, they had these books with these elaborate, detailed, drawn uh, cartoons. And you know the names of those books, right? Uh, Where's Waldo? Maybe some of you have seen it. And you would take it. I was terrible at those books. I could look forever. My kids would find it like that. It would take me forever to find out wherever Waldo was in this picture. But I, I think I'm better at Where's Jesus than I am at Where's Waldo. So you look at Exodus chapter 17. Where's Jesus? I tell you, he's all over the place. Well, first of all, there's Jesus just like Moses leading the people of God. There you are. Moses, you were the leader for Israel. Jesus, you're our leader. You're our captain. I see Jesus there. Secondly, I see Jesus. There's Jesus. He's the rock. Stricken, but providing life, giving nourishment for the entire people of God. Jesus, you're our rock. You're the one who brings forth life. When you are struck, yes, that's you, Jesus. But then I see Jesus again. There's Moses praying on high as his people battle beneath. There's Jesus praying for his people. Did you know that the Bible tells us that Jesus is ascended to heaven right now, that he sits at the right hand of God the Father on high, and what does he do? He's praying for his people. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for his people. And maybe there's nobody else on earth who prays for you. Maybe you don't have a praying wife or a husband. Maybe you don't have a praying mother. Maybe you don't have a praying grandmother. If there's nobody else on this earth who prays for you, I'll tell you who does pray for you. Jesus Christ prays for you from heaven. And there's Jesus praying over us as we fight the battles in our life. And there's Jesus again. Jesus is down in the midst of the battle. Jesus is Joshua, our Savior, leading us in victorious battle. Then finally, I would say, Jesus, he himself is our banner. He's our flag. He gets the glory. He gets the honor. He gets the attention. 
So think of it right now. Where do you need to plant that flag? Oh, there's a place in your life. There's a place in your life where things are going really well. Why don't you plant the flag of Jesus right there in that place? There's another place in your life. It's a place with challenge and misery, perhaps. Why don't you just go plant the flag of Jesus right there? Look up to it and say, Jesus is our banner. He's worthy of it. You can receive that from him today. Let me pray to just that effect. Lord God, I pray full of gratitude, Lord, full of thanksgiving for your word and how it speaks to us again and again and again of who Jesus is and what he does in our life. But Lord, with all that attention to that, we say, Jesus, won't you plant your flag boldly and strongly in our life? Here you are, Lord. Let it be that Jesus is our banner, that whatever battles we fight, that you would pray for us in the midst of them. And at the end of it all, your banner would be raised. That you would receive the glory, the honor, the attention that you deserve. Do it, Lord, and thereby bring yourself much glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.